Some of my earliest memories are associated with hearing certain phrases from my mom, like, you need to apologize to your sister. Or, Bruce, you need to do a better job of learning to say, I'm sorry. Or, when your little brother apologizes, you need to forgive him. Why is it that parents need to teach children about how to give and receive forgiveness? Well, it's because it doesn't come to us naturally, and it doesn't come to us naturally because we are instinctively selfish. And we all do things that create conflict in relationships. Now, sometimes it happens accidentally, and sometimes it happens on purpose. But the problem for us starts in childhood, and it doesn't go away when we become adults. And when you and I have relationships that get broken, however they get broken, it's not always easy for us to do what's necessary to patch things up. Saying to another human being, I am so sorry and I hope you will forgive me can be very humbling to say. And saying to another human being, I forgive you, means letting go of our hurt and letting go of our need to get even. And in fact, depending upon the amount of relational damage that's been done, forgiveness can be one of the most difficult things that you and I ever do as human beings. And yet, we need to begin with this understanding that without forgiveness, you and I would never ever be able to get connected with God. And that's because we've all engaged in behavior that hurts us and hurts others and falls short of, God, of what God expects. We're all broken and we're separated from our Creator because of sinful attitudes and actions. That is the tragic human condition. But thankfully, because God loves us, He's willing to forgive us and draw us into His embrace. And yet, when we respond to God and we're forgiven, He then expects us to forgive others the way He's forgiven us. And sadly, we sometimes fail to do that because forgiveness is something we love to receive but sometimes find hard to give. And yet God knows that it's not good for our heart and our soul if we hold on to our hurts. And it's not good for other people in our lives if we refuse to forgive. So forgiveness is serious business, and it matters a lot to God how we deal with it. And so Jesus takes the time to help us understand God's view of forgiveness. And he does so through a parable. We're going to listen now as Julie reads this particular parable to us from Matthew chapter 18.
Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay his debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Thank you, Julie. So Peter asks this question, how often should I forgive? And we need to understand that's a natural question for someone in that day to ask. You see, the ancient Jewish rabbis had unfortunately misunderstood the Old Testament book of Amos. And as a result, they came to the conclusion that you only had to forgive another person three times. And after that, you could continue to hold your grudge and be assured that God would punish that other person. Yet that's not how forgiveness works in the kingdom of God. And so this faulty rabbinical teaching highlights the importance of reading and interpreting Scripture correctly. Now, Peter is a faithful Jew, and he's a product of his culture, so he's very aware of this free forgiveness rule. But he also knows that Jesus doesn't always limit himself by what the rabbis teach. And so Peter decides he's going to impress Jesus and show that he's a really forgiving guy by giving a higher number. And yet Jesus' answer is not what Peter expects because Jesus essentially says, when it comes to forgiveness, Peter, don't keep score. Let's take a closer look at this passage. Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? 
But Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, Peter's been taught that God always has a cap on forgiveness, and Jesus now just blows that out of the water. But here's what's really interesting. I don't know if this occurred to you, but it seems to me that Peter's question's a little self-centered. Because he asks, how many times do I need to forgive someone else? He doesn't say, how many times does someone else need to forgive me? You see, he's considering those times when I'm going to be in the right, but not when I'm in the wrong. And the fact is, forgiveness needs to work in both directions. We need to give forgiveness and we need to receive it. And that's what Jesus is going to explain next in the parable we'll get to in a moment. But Jesus' answer 77 times must come as a complete shock. And what Jesus is doing is using a large number to show the sheer lunacy of trying to keep score. I've got to believe that when Peter hears that answer, he's thinking, 77 times? You've got to be kidding, Jesus. How will I ever keep track? And that's exactly the point. And, and in a rule-oriented culture like the ancient Jews, it occurred to me, well, what if Jesus actually did want them to keep track? How would you monitor yourself and keep score of 77 times of forgiveness? So I picture my wife, Julie, taking a big chart and putting it on our refrigerator. And I mess up, and I apologize, and she graciously forgives me, and then she walks over to that big chart and goes, that's one, honey. And then I screw up again and apologize again, and she forgives me again, and she puts another check. Day after day, week after week, and then one day she says, guess what, honey? We just hit magic number 77. No more forgiveness. It's all revenge and judgment from here on out. That would be ludicrous, wouldn't it? It would be stupid to try and keep a chart like that because because marriages don't work like that. Relationships don't work like that. And here's the point. It's true whether the number is 77 or whether it's 3 or anything else. God doesn't want us to keep score. However, if we're honest, we may not keep a physical chart on a refrigerator. But some of us keep a mental chart, don't we? We sometimes hold on to certain hurts because we do like to keep score, and we sometimes like to use those old hurts as leverage against the other person. But that is not the way forgiveness is supposed to work in the kingdom of God. And that's why the Apostle Paul writes in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus is saying the same thing here in a different way. He's saying, Peter, don't keep score. Yet there's so much more to forgiveness than just eliminating numerical caps. And so to explain this issue more fully, Jesus tells this parable. Now, as I said last week, parables are designed to teach us about the values of God's kingdom. And as we dig into these stories and as we understand their allegorical meaning, we usually find that God's values in some way conflict with our values. 
And therefore, every time we explore a parable, it should become an exercise in some self-examination. Self-examination that leads, hopefully, to some kind of change in how we think and how we behave. And the first thing this parable teaches is that God, represented by the king in this story, is incredibly forgiving. In fact, God... And the person of this king engages in merciful, costly forgiveness, and he does so as an example to us. Let's take a look. The servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, to understand what this act of forgiveness actually involves, we first must understand just how big this servant's debt actually is. And when it comes to understanding monetary values of the first century, one of the ways we try to get a hold of that is we say, well, that's what this money would be worth today. But the issue isn't what it's worth today. The issue is what was it worth back then, and what was its purchasing power, and what was its economic impact? And in the translation Julie read, this debt was 10,000 bags of gold. In the translation I read read from, it's the talent. And a talent was a lot of money, and that was the actual unit of, of, of measurement of that money. And here's what that meant back in the first century. If you worked as a day laborer and earned the daily wage of a denarius which some translations just refer to as one silver coin, that daily wage of a denarius, it would take you 20 years or so to earn one talent. 20 years of labor to earn one talent. This guy owes 10,000. But consider this. The entire annual budget for the province of Galilee, a governmental unit, was 300 talents. And this guy owes 10,000. So this debt involves more money than most governments at that day ever would have. More money than most kings ever would have. And remember I've said before that in every parable, at least once, sometimes more, Jesus implements, he puts some element in that story to create some shock value. And this is one of the shock value elements of this story. Who would be the, what kind of king would be able to acquire this much wealth? Well, the king of God's kingdom. Because that king has wealth we can't even begin to imagine. And so the king in this parable is incredibly rich and his servant is incredibly in debt. And from a human perspective, the only way a servant could run up that kind of tab would be to, be, would be to embezzle the funds of the king. And so this guy's in debt because he's been untrustworthy and unfaithful, and we need to understand that this debt is not, he could never repay it within the course of his lifetime. It's unpayable. But since the servant can't pay, is there any way for the king to get any of his money back? Well, sure. He can do that similar to the way creditors do today. What do they do? They take your stuff and they sell it, and they get whatever they can for it to try and recoup some of their loss. But the laws back then were much more harsh. If you owed somebody money and they took your stuff and then they sold it and you still owed more, you know what they did? They sold you. They sold you and your family into slavery. 
Think about that. In order to pay a debt, you would become a slave. So Jesus is painting a picture here of a man who faces total financial and relational ruin as a direct result of his own unethical and probably illegal behavior. And if the king insists on justice, which he is legally entitled to do, this man's life is over. And he asks for leniency, begging for time to repay the debt. Yet he can't pay it, and he knows it. And the king knows it. And yet even knowing it's an unpayable debt, he still asks for leniency, and he gets more than he asks for. The king could have been gracious enough to say, okay, I'll give you some time, buddy. And then he would have gotten back at least some of his money. But he chooses to wipe the slate clean. And that's an incredible response. And that would shock Jesus' audience. They would expect the king to demand justice because that's what most kings in that day would do. Instead, this servant is rescued from the consequences of his own behavior by the forgiveness of the king. It was a forgiveness that was merciful because the man deserved justice and the king withheld justice. It was a forgiveness that was costly because the king paid a huge price. And why is this king so willing to be so incredibly forgiving? Well, I see two reasons. I think he must be a king who's naturally inclined toward mercy. He must have a default in that direction. He must prefer mercy to justice. And you know who's like that? The king of the kingdom of God. We're told that in the book of Micah, chapter 7, verse 18, that God delights to show mercy. Do you know that about our God? He doesn't delight in justice. He doesn't delight in punishment. He delights to show mercy. And we see that here with this king in the parable. But there's a second thing. The king grants mercy because the servant admits that the debt exists and needs to be repaid. If the servant would not have acknowledged the problem, mercy would not have been granted. And so the very, ask, the very act of asking for leniency requires him to admit what he's done. You see, it's a form of confession. And this king in the parable representing the king of the kingdom of God. Oh, he loves to be merciful when people confess. And so there's a profound spiritual lesson in this king's behavior. The servant is guilty, and the king is innocent, but the king assumes the guilty man's burden. He absorbs the debt. He carries the loss on behalf of his servant. And again, because this is an analogy, does that remind you of anyone? It reminds me of Jesus, an innocent man who assumes the burdens of our guilt and who chooses to forgive us of our sins when we ask for mercy. Just like this servant, though, we need to admit our guilt and ask for leniency from the king. 
Now, the parable doesn't end there because there's two sides to forgiveness. There's the need to receive forgiveness and the need to extend forgiveness. But unfortunately, in this story, the servant doesn't understand that because he's selfish. And just like us at times, he's happy to be forgiven but chooses to be unforgiving toward others. Let's see what happens. So his fellow servant fell down. This is after the guy goes out and confronts the guy with the debt to him. He fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you almost word for word what the first servant said to the king. But he refused and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, Here's something, again, we need to understand in terms of first century monetary values. The, this second servant's debt was actually payable, unlike the first servant's debt. If you earn that daily wage of one denarius, this debt equals about 100 days of labor. A working class man could take care of his family, he could pay off a little bit of the debt every, every month, and he could be debt free in two to three years. That's less time than it takes most of us to pay off our car loans. And yet, that first servant confronts this guy so harshly as we heard when the passage was read. He grabs him and he starts to choke him and he demands immediate payment. And so this second servant asks for leniency, but the first servant refuses to give it. There's no leniency, there's no mercy. He wants it now. And when he doesn't get it, he throws that other guy into prison. Now again, he has every legal right to do that, but he has no moral right. Not after the mercy he just received from the king. The king has just demonstrated that some things in life are more important than justice. And in any situation, we can choose to practice forgiveness by withholding justice and extending mercy. And we can do that even though it may cost us something. Whether it costs us money or just the feeling like we want to get even. Forgiveness that's merciful. Forgiveness that's costly. That should be the default in the kingdom of God. But it's not for this guy who has just received the king's mercy. And here's what's so wild. If this servant would have been mercifully lenient, he actually would have been better off. Because over time, the debt would have been repaid. He would have gotten his money back. And by demanding justice and refusing to be merciful... He's worse off, and so is his debtor. You see, there's a cost of forgiveness, but there's a cost to a lack of forgiveness. And so this first servant pays a price. The loss of the money. The loss of a relationship. But he's about to pay an even higher price. Because when the king learns what has happened, this man's going to experience even more severe consequences. This is the king speaking to the second ser first servant. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And then here's the punchline letting us know that this 
parable is an allegorical story. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. And so when servant number one stands before the king a second time, we can see that the king's attitude's changed. He's, he's very angry now and his anger's justified because he believes that the servant has taken advantage of him. In fact, the king concludes that his original plea for mercy wasn't really sincere. After all, how can he ask to be forgiven if he refuses to forgive others? Why should he expect to receive mercy if he refuses to extend mercy? And there's a word for that, and it's hypocrisy. This king has no toleration for hypocrites. And so the king who was merciful the first time is not merciful this time. And we see that there's limits to his willingness to forgive. But here's what we need to understand. When someone is truly sorry, when someone's truly repentant, they can be forgiven again and again and again. But when someone blatantly takes advantage of the king's mercy by acting like a hypocrite, then that person will receive what they deserve. You see, based on his treatment of servant number two, servant number one makes it clear, oh, I really prefer judgment and justice. Mercy's not my default. I don't like to do that. And the king's response is, well, if that's what you prefer, that's what you're going to get. And so he gets the exact same treatment that he dished out to the second servant. Because of his refusal to forgive, he faces some very harsh consequences. And we need to realize there's a cost to forgiveness and there's a cost to a lack of forgiveness. And we need to decide which price are we willing to pay. Now, at the outset of this parable in verse 23, Jesus says his purpose is to teach us what the kingdom of God is like. And in the very last verse, he makes it clear that this is an analogy. And so, as we've seen, the king in the parable represents God. And unfortunately, the unforgiving servant in the parable sometimes, sometimes represents us. And you see, just like that first servant, we have an unpayable debt. Unpayable debt to God because of our sinful attitudes and actions. And, and we can ask Him for leniency, but it's a debt we can never pay. And the only way to be forgiven is to receive the merciful, costly forgiveness of God. And He paid that cost when He sent His Son to the cross. Just like this king in the parable, Jesus took on our guilt, and He paid our debt. And what is so amazing is that when we placed our trust in Jesus, when we demonstrate our faith in God by confessing our sins and being baptized, then God acts just like the king in the parable, and He mercifully wipes our slate clean. What an incredible gift. And yet, having received that amazing gift, Sometimes we're not willing to extend that same forgiveness to others. And our loving Father says here in this parable, that's just not acceptable. 
If we want to live by justice and judgment rather than mercy, then that's what he'll give us. But his preference always is to forgive. And he wants us to have that same preference. A preference toward mercy, merciful, costly forgiveness. And here's the fact, in most of our broken relationships, when forgiveness is established, everyone's better off. So it's a price worth paying. And yet even when we know that in our heads, sometimes in our hearts, when we've been deeply, deeply hurt, it can be oh so hard to forgive. And here's what's really amazing. If you and I find it hard to forgive someone, you know what? God can give us the strength to do just that. If we are willing to do what Jesus asks, but lack the strength, He'll give it to us. And here's a story which helps us see just how God can do that, how He can help us forgive those who've wronged us. Some of you will be familiar with the name of Corey Tenboom. During World War II, Corey worked alongside her father as a watchmaker in the city of Harlem, Netherlands. And they were appalled when the Nazis moved in and took over and began to arrest and persecute and harass their Jewish neighbors. And they decided to help by creating a hiding place inside their home. And and they eventually became part of the official underground resistance movement. And, and Jewish people who were on the run and under threat from the Nazis would learn about this. And they'd come to the Ten Booms home and they would put them in this hiding place. And then the Ten Booms would contact the resistance movement. And eventually, in, under the cloak of night, they had like an underground railroad type of thing. And they would help these Jews escape and get out of the Netherlands safely. And it's estimated that Corey and her family saved the lives of, of as many as 800 Jewish people. But unfortunately, a Dutch informer squealed on them, and they were arrested, and Corey eventually wound up in the notorious Ravensbrück concentration camp for women. I can't even begin to imagine what that must have been like. A place of brutality and death, a place of almost otherworldly horror it was an incredible test of her faith. But she prayed, and she started Bible studies, and she held worship services for others who were believers like herself, and she held on tightly to God. By God's grace, she survived the war, and she wrote a book about her experiences. And as a result, she often was invited into churches to tell her story. Some of those churches were in Germany as German Christians wanted to hear her story and wrestle with the troubled history of their own nation. One night, Corey was speaking at a church in Munich, and as she looked out over the crowd, she saw a face standing in the back that she would never forget. It was one of the SS guards from the Ravensbrück camp. Now, since the day she, she'd been liberated, she'd never once seen any of her tormentors this was the first time, face to face, there's that man. And at the sight of his face, she writes, 
suddenly all the painful memories came flooding back. Memories of the abuse that I and so many other women received from this man and the other guards. As we might imagine, it wasn't easy for her to continue her talk, wondering why this man is there in church. Well, she received her answer because after her talk, he came up with a smile on her face and he said, oh, it was so wonderful to hear you talk because I am now a follower of Christ. And Jesus has taken away my sins. And he reached out to shake her hand. And here's what happened next in Corey's own words. His hand was stretched out to shake mine. And I, I who had preached so often of the need to forgive, I kept my hand at my side. Yet even as angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through my head, I saw the sin of them. Jesus had died for this man. Was I going to demand more? Lord Jesus, I prayed. Oh, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile and I could not. I, I struggled to raise my hand and I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Please give me your forgiveness. I finally reached out. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder down along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him while into my heart sprang a love for this man that almost overwhelmed me. In that moment, Corey writes, I learned a powerful lesson. When Jesus tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. Wow. Wow. Corey's hate and anger fell away. Jesus took them. She released her desire for revenge. Jesus took it. Because of Jesus, she was able to mercifully forgive a former enemy. She lived out the truth of this parable. And she chose to be a forgiving servant of our King. We know Forgiveness is not always easy. And yet Jesus makes it so clear. Forgiveness is what he wants us to do. It's a key part of how he wants us to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. So if there's a broken relationship in your life, if there's someone you need to forgive, I want to encourage you to take heart from this parable Jesus told. And I want you to take heart from Corey Tenboom and her example, how she lived out these principles that Jesus taught us to show that this is possible. My prayer is that you and I would be willing to forgive others just as the King 
of God's kingdom has forgiven us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are such challenging words to hear from Jesus because they remind us never to take your forgiveness for granted. And and they remind us that we cannot overlook the importance of forgiveness in our relationships with other human beings. So please search our hearts, Father. Show us where we might need to make some changes. And with your help, may we each live as more forgiving people. And we pray this now in the name of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our King. Amen.